Welcome to Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. This podcast in our firm is all about helping you and your organization achieve habitual excellence via one unifying focus, one value-based structure, and one performance system. In other words, it's about helping you capture dramatically more value through achieving perfect care and perfect safety for patients and staff. To learn more about Value Capture and our services, visit www.valuecapturellc.com. All right, listeners, welcome to uh, this episode of Habitual Excellence, uh, where healthcare leaders talk about transformation in American healthcare and what that's taking and the transformation in themselves. That's a big part of that. Um, I'm Ken Siegel. I uh, have the privilege of leading Value Capture, and we have the privilege of supporting great leaders, and we have one today. And uh, Dr. Tim Lander. Tim is the Chief of Surgery at Children's Minnesota, and uh, he is much more than that. Uh, He'll tell you more in a second, Um, but he's an incredible informaticist. uh, And according to his bio, he is also a spectacular chef. Um, and Tim, uh, we'll let Tim introduce himself in a second, but Tim is here to talk to us today about uh, learning to define great leadership differently and really the journey of one chief of surgery, his own journey in doing that um, together with a True North uh, journey uh, in his institution. And we really want this to be a conversation that's very real about sort of leadership and continuous improvement and coaching at this sort of fraught moment in American healthcare history. And we're really glad to have Tim, a true Renaissance leader, do that with us. So Tim, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Lander. And tell us a little bit more about your biography and and, um, you at this moment. Well, thanks, Ken. It's a pleasure to um, be with you today and and share some of my thoughts. It's sort of an honor that, that, that I would even be asked to to speak to your audience about being a leader, I still feel like I'm very early in my in my arc <laughs> as a leader. Um, I've, I've come to leadership, I, I guess you'd call it relatively late in my career. Um, yeah. I, um, I By training, I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist and facial plastic surgeon. Yeah. And I grew up in grew up in the Twin Cities uh, in Minnesota, Minneapolis and St. Yeah. Paul. And uh, when I, after I completed my training in, in general ENT um, in San Diego, California, and returned to the Twin Cities, um, I trained. I trained in a. I did a. I did a fellowship in, in pediatric ENT and uh, facial plastic surgery, and then I joined a very small. <laughs> I joined one other pediatric otolaryngologist in private practice here in the Twin Cities, yeah. based primarily in Minneapolis, back in the early two thousands, and. And so I, I was I was basically a private, you know, private practice pediatric surgeon for the first 10 years of my my post-training career. And then we we as a group at that time, we had ballooned to all of three people in the group. And we had decided yeah. to um, to to uh, become employee employees of Children's Hospital. Some of the first employed surgeons at the hospital had. And, and that decision was primarily driven by um, trying to trying to make it easier to deliver patient care in a, in a, in a tertiary quaternary hospital. And then since mm-hmm. then we grew into a group of about eight or nine physicians and we've got a, a multiple advanced practice, practice advanced practice practice uh, providers and um, audiologists, et cetera. So suffice it to say the first 10 years of my career was a private practitioner, frontline surgeon. Um, the next 10 years an employed um, pretty much frontline surgeon. And it was only towards the end of that, that that second decade that I became the um, the medical director of the pediatric ENT program here at Children's, and then surprisingly, quite shortly after that, um, became the 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 chief of surgery after the the previous chief of surgery who had been in that position for twenty years um, had announced his retirement from practice. Thank thanks, Dr. Lander. So. Uh... Some of you may have caught it, but um, Tim said surprisingly moved into that leadership slot. And I think that's going to form a background in what I think a lot of the C-suite uh, physician and clinical leaders and other leaders may respond to in, in Tim's journey here, because um, you shared with me, and, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, that, that you really 
were not picked as a leader originally. And, and yet through this uh, sort of recent journey um, have really powerfully overcome that and maximized um, uh, your, your, your sort of powers as a leader and on children's behalf in really dramatic ways. So I think we're all excited to hear a little bit about that. Um, but frame us up if you could. So about two years ago, the institution, Children's Minnesota, decided to change. And um, what, what was that change? If you just had to describe it, what did you all set out to do as a leadership team that was different than how you've been going? Uh, to to give us a frame for this work. Well, interestingly enough, the Children's had decided to make this transition to being a continuous improvement organization or or um, start that journey, if you will, um, yeah. to become a high reliable organization, um, which, which is, I would describe it as a somewhat fashionable trend. And you're starting to see a lot of healthcare yeah. organizations sort of adopt that. Um, yeah. And like, Many things in healthcare, we seem to be about five to 10, maybe even 15 years behind many other industries in yeah. this regard. Um, sure. but, but, but children's made that decision uh, almost coincident with my, um, with my taking yeah. on the role as chief of surgery. Um, yeah. We really became serious about it, like within my second or third month, quote unquote, on the job yeah. as chief of surgery. So that was interesting. I believe it was primarily in response to what we learned through the pandemic of the 2020 yeah. COVID pandemic. Um, my, my insight that I've gained over the last um, two or three years on that score is that Children's Minnesota as a pediatric hospital or children's hospital system um, was actually was actually very well resourced, was blessed yeah. with a lot of human capital and was able to function very uh, effectively as long as all of those people were in place. Yeah. But what, what we all learned in the pandemic is when you have to downsize or you hit a financial situation where you where you no longer have nearly as many people as you once had, and then I don't think it's a secret to anybody that may be listening that um, there's been a significant, um, right. a significant amount of retirement from the healthcare industry. People are reassessing what type of what type of careers they want to seek in the future. And um, healthcare is really struggling with a workforce problem. Yeah. And that persists even now that we're pulling out of the pandemic. Of course. Yeah. And so what I think what children's finally realized is like, whoa, <laughs> we don't have very good, we don't have very, we, our systems are not highly reliable. Right. We do not have foolproof systems. They're highly dependent on a very skilled and experienced workforce that knows our systems and is primarily built around relationships. Right. And if you want to become a highly reliable organization, you you can't base your system uh, on on single individuals who happen to know how the system works. Right. Um, and so that, right. that that I think that was one of the things that really spurned the organization to 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 adopt this change and to take this take this yeah. pivot and basically say we need to get our house in order and learn how to build a much more resilient and functional healthcare yeah. system because of all the uh, headwinds that we see in the, in the yeah. world. So you, you set out to sort of change in that way to, to build systems based on values that you held and sort of head toward true North and sort of goals in some ways that may be resonant for those that have been on um, similar journeys. And you're a new leader you intersect with this intention and you describe some pretty catalytic moments early in some of the sort of framing exercises um, in which you shifted others' perceptions of you and actually you saw some things for the first time that spoke very deeply to you as a person and a leader. And I wonder if you could describe a couple of those early catalytic moments um, uh, for us. Yeah, so I think it might be helpful to understand where where I was coming into this. Yeah. So imagine you are the you are you're the new chief of surgery. Um, yeah. You've been on the job for less than two months. Um, it believe it or not, the job description for chief of surgery was not very clearly defined. The previous chief of surgery was primarily just a professional staff um, yeah. 
leadership position with basically about a 30% administrative component and 70% yeah. clinical. Yeah. But when I, when I um, became the chief of surgery, there was a, it, the, the organization was very intentional to bring the chief of surgery into alignment with the other clinical chiefs within the organization, yeah. critical care, pediatrics, et cetera. And, um, and massively expanding the, um, the administrative role as it pertained to the, 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 the hospital system. So, you know, I'm uh, basically 60% of my time is focused on hospital operations, clinical operations. The other 30% of the time, maybe on professional staff concerns, credentialing and, um, you know, pro professional staff management, um, and then a small, a small component of clinical work. So I didn't really even know what the job was. I was just getting my feet wet and they throw me into the value the, we had the five day um what i call the indoctrination <laughs> uh where value indoctrination so, leadership shared yeah, experience yeah, yeah whatever you want to call it um uh five basically it's a it was a five day pretty intensive eight 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 hours a day from monday through friday with 40 of the quote-unquote top leaders in the organization some of whom have been in their roles for many years and a few had actually been in their roles even less than me. We had some, yeah. we had one individual who had been there, like that was their first day on the job was like, boom, it's value capture yeah. day and week. So, so there, and then I, I definitely, so I didn't really even have a good idea what my job was. And I sort of came into this whole enterprise thinking like, I don't even really belong here. And part of, part of the reason I say that is because about five, six, seven years ago now, I was at a pretty significant crossroads in my life. I had reached a level of um, like disgruntlement, <laughs> um, disengagement, and I was frankly despondent about being uh, part of the healthcare system. I felt like I had lost control of my clinical practice. I was sort of working for a healthcare system that wanted to tell me how I was supposed to do my job. And and yet I look every place I looked around, I would see things that like, boy, this, this is not a great way of doing things. This doesn't really apply to me. This seems like, why are we doing it this way? And so I had kind of developed this reputation as a bit of a squeaky wheel, someone who doesn't really, who's not really a team player, who's complaining all the time, um, who doesn't, who actually would just out and out refuse to do certain things as a member of the professional staff, because they just didn't make sense to me. And so I was a bit of an outcast. And um, I get, for better or worse, um, when, the, when the job of medical director of my ENT group was vacated by, because of the retirement of one of my senior partners, mm -hmm. um, my group wanted me to be the next medical director. They, they actually saw me as someone who had a lot of good ideas and could be a very strong leader for the, for the group. Um, this view was not shared by the greater hospital leadership, as you can probably imagine. Um, they thought I would be the worst uh, selection for that role. And for better, I, I or can I can, and I and I hope that the leaders listening are resonating as much as I think many will be. Right, this kind of tension and differing views um, in the in the C suite and and across the physician leadership. So yeah, yeah so nobody, keep going, Tim. Please, this is great. Yeah, nobody nobody likes the rabble rouser. I I, I guess. Mm -hmm. And and the and and honestly, the culture at Children's was not one that was very embracing, embracing towards um, alternative points of view, different ways of looking at things. Could we do things different? Could we do things better? No, this is just how we do it at Children's. This is the Children's way: get in line or get out. Basically, was kind of the message at that time. And so, um, I one of my partners described one of the reasons why my partners wanted me to wanted me in this role as their medical director was because it was specifically because I didn't want the job. Uh -huh. They're like, this is the, exactly the type of leader we want: the reluctant leader, someone who doesn't mm -hmm. is not seeking leadership for their own self-aggrandizement, who's not interested in titles, who's not interested in putting themselves on a different level. Uh, but someone who's actually interested in making our lives as yeah. surgeons better. And so I kind of went into the enterprise with that. And, and it, there was a bit of a turning point when it became clear to the hospital administration at that time that, that, that my group wasn't going to accept anybody as our medical director other yeah. than me. And um, I had to work through that conversation with the leadership at Children's. And they're basically yeah. like, I don't, we don't see how you could possibly be successful in this role. 
you're someone who doesn't like to follow rules, you're someone who thinks everything we do here is stupid. Um, how do you see yourself functioning in this role? Yeah. And my response, uh, I, I hadn't really planned the response, but I, but my authentic response was, um, look, I understand that when you're an employed physician and you're unhappy about things, you have a lot of choices. You can complain about things. You can decide to take yourself out of the conversation. You, you can play a lot. You can do whatever you want. You have a lot of agency and autonomy. But when you become a leader and you're the medical director of the group, you have different role. You have a different role and you have different responsibilities, not only to your group, but to the organization yeah. which you work for. And I understand that. And I will do, even though I don't want this job, I promise that I will do the best I can to be the best ENT medical director I can possibly be. Yeah. And um, that was a pretty good answer um, because ultimately ended up getting, ended up getting, getting the job. So, so, so there, that amount of alignment had happened. Right. And, and, but maybe, you know, I, as a listener, I'm hearing it's kind of a detente will see, right. But, but, you know, but recognizing the larger role has already happened. You then come into this room and, you know, it sounds like some discoveries happened that really resonated with you and yeah. allowed you to reach some others right there. So, uh, yeah, so, so this is great. Yeah, so, yeah. um, <laughs> so I would say that at that point in it, so, so interestingly enough, and, and maybe, maybe the listeners can, can jump to the conclusion that, okay, so that was four years ago, roughly, or three and a half years yeah. ago. And then they offered me the job of chief of surgery. Again, a role that I did not seek and did not want. In fact, in fact, yeah. I specifically said, if there's anybody else in the organization that you would consider giving this job to, please give it to them because I do not want it. And yeah. the response came back um, was like, yeah, we're not really looking at anybody else for this role. We want you to do it. So within that year and a half of me being the ENT medical director, not only had I demonstrated that I was actually a good medical director, but I was exactly the type of leader that they actually wanted to promote into a higher level of leadership in the organization. So, right. so then coming into this shortly after becoming the chief of surgery and then coming into this value capture event where, where our CEO had basically said, you know, we, he's, and he was very clear at the time. He basically said, I'm not, I don't know that I'm entirely sold on everything about continuous improvement in HRO, but I know for a fact that we need to do something different as an organization in order to create a sense of resiliency. Um, and we're a nonprofit children's hospital and our yeah. basic, one of the tenets of our existence is that we need to be here for the community. And I think most of us kind of felt at the time, it wasn't clear that we would be able to survive as an institution if we didn't make some significant structural changes in how we do things in children's. Yeah. So that was kind of the setting for it. Um, and that I think that was great. It, it For me, I don't, didn't think about the time, but in reflecting, that created a very nice sense of psychological safety. Okay, mm -hmm. even the head of this organization isn't necessarily convinced that this is the right path, but he's willing to take a leap of faith and say, let's just roll with this for a while and see, and see what it can offer. So that may have been the first transition yeah. and that was like within the first 10 minutes of, of day one on monday power of psychological safety from the leader yeah, yeah. Power of psychological safety. yeah. so so you know and at that point and at that point remember i'm a guy who like i didn't want this job i honestly didn't think i didn't know how long i was going to be in this role or whether or not i would want to continue in this role because i really strongly felt i got a lot of ideas and a lot of ways i think we sh we should change our our approach to running the hospital. But again, I'm super naive. I'm like a new leader. I don't really know how the system works. I don't know all the players. Yeah. And I wasn't really sure that I was going to be able to be, to, to be okay with that. I'm like, you know, yeah. if it's, if it's just more of the same and like, it takes, you're hitting your head against the wall every time you turn around to get something done around here, it's like, I'm out. So, so my, my, my psychological space at that time was, I don't have a lot to lose. And so I was very, I was very Tim at those meetings for the first couple days, I would speak my mind. I had a reputation of just saying what was on my mind, even if it was controversial. Um, and anyway, so I was, I was pretty open 
and with my my thoughts and ideas in a respectful manner, but like, you know, not just going along with the party line on everything. And then one of my colleagues and I, I and I, I maybe it's good. I don't remember who it was. Oh, no, I actually do remember who it was. She's, she's no longer with the organization, but she she was in a role um, at the organization um, that was basically uh, a leader of change management. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And she's, she kind of stopped. It was either the end of the first day or the second day. And she said, Tim, I got to tell you, you are completely changing the, the way that I see old white surgeons. She's mm. like, she couldn't believe that I was like open to different ways of thinking, really like understood the need to change and was basically willing to, to, to at least engage in those conversations and potentially do the hard work that was required. So that was very encouraging. And then I would say the turning, the really big turning point for me during that value capture week, and I think this was on Thursday, so the fourth day yeah. into it, which yeah. is like yeah. Lego Lego day. Yeah, Lego. Um, and uh, and I and so I and so the the tagline here is I cried at Legos. I cried at Legos. Hey, and, and Legos for those who aren't familiar is a is a systems thinking doing exercise that over it came originally from the Toyota Supplier Support Center that we've evolved to include some very powerful elements on the leadership role. And Tim, let's hand it back to you for, you cried at Legos. What did you cry at? Why? And sort of where did you take it from there? Yeah, so. okay. So just very, super brief setup. At the beginning of the Lego exercise, you're basically a cog in the wheels of the factory and you're basically putting together widgets. And at the beginning of the exercise, it's sort of, it's utter chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the materials that you have to put your widgets together are all jumbled up in one box and you can't start doing your work until someone else has completed their work and you're not making any money and you're not getting a bonus and you're super stressed out. And it's just like, it's hor- It's horrible. <laughs> and yeah. so I was like, okay, I can totally see the parallel. <laughs> between the the lego widget factory and a and a day on the front lines in healthcare yeah and um but then as you go through the exercise there's a series of role playing and one of the one of the things that happens is after each after each round of the lego exercise where you're trying to improve the process um there's a there's there's a, a facilitators at this point it was people from value capture that were role playing the goal the role of the sort of frontline supervisor who's 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 like they're responding to the needs of their workforce and is kind of responsible for delivering the widgets and like making the money and delivering the product um, and he's not having a lot of success and his uh, his supervisor um, comes in at the end of each round to kind of do a little check-in and they have a series of standard work and a series of questions that they go through to kind of evaluate, you know, how did the day go? What, what went, what went well, what, what didn't go so well and what are you going to do? And it was, it was during the interaction. It was probably the second or third round of this interaction. Um, But I was just watching these two, people from value capture it's a very artificial you know situation they're playing roles so it's like it's sort of the kind of thing that i would generally sort of scoff at like role playing small groups hate that stuff but as i sat there watching this interaction between the two um i i i I was i was overcome by a, a by a sense of emotion that is like rarely experienced in my lifetime i can think of maybe two or three times that this has happened to me in my life and I became like, I started, I started kind of becoming tearful mm-hmm. and then I began to like actually quietly sob. Mm-hmm. And then at some point I couldn't control myself anymore and actually had to like get up and move to the wall. Like mm-hmm. I, I had to take myself away from the table and move away because I was kind of embarrassed that I was having this, this, this reaction and was basically crying at, at the yeah. Lego exercise. And, and what so, was it? And yeah. what was it? What 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 were you feeling? And what what did you respond to? So, so so when when one of the value capture facilitators came over to me as they started the next round, she said, "Is everything okay?" And I said, "I said, yeah, everything's fine." She said, "What what what's the matter? You know, why are you crying?" And I said, "I said I, I said this." And, and again, remember, we'd had three three days of value capture, like yeah. indoctrination leading up to this. And then on day four, it all kind of crystallized for me. 
And what I realized it was the first time that I had ever witnessed how a interaction between two human beings in the work situation could be respectful, um, not demeaning, um, constructive, a true give and take and like a true coaching moment Mm -hmm. that results in sequential improvement of the, of the workplace. Yeah. And that was, I, and then I realized, because I realized at the time that is what I had been craving ever Mm -hmm. since I became a physician um, Mm -hmm. was like the ability for for you to have an impact on your daily work and for your ability to design a better system that not only works well for you, but works well for everybody in the organization. And like that, to me, that's what, that was like the epiphany moment for me. And I realized at that time, I was like, well, if children's is serious about embracing this, this methodology and this almost the culture of continuous improvement, I I can stick with this for a little while longer. Mm. Mm. And that is such a powerful story of vulnerability and and thank you for sharing it. Um, and we also know that if that had stayed in the leadership classroom, it could have been a powerful moment remembered uh, you know, a year and a half later and not much else. So the real test for you and for children's was taking that realization that you and other, and you helped others have, and and by the way, breaking through their stereotypes too about surgeons, which is something that's very important to do, or physicians or whatever we carry with each other. Um, and you decided to start making change with this with this evolved framework, um, and and so talk about that a little bit. Where did you go with it? How did your leadership style change? Give us some examples, you know, as you help lead the organization on, if you will, that aha. Um, well, the, I guess the first thing to say is that um, it was a little bit of an unknown as to whether or not we would actually, you know, follow through on mm-hmm. this like adoption mm-hmm. of continuous improvement. And there was a lot of skepticism with the organization. You know, we had tried, we had kind of tried this multiple times in the past and it was always failed. And I think a lot of, that's another concept that'll probably resonate well with a lot of people in healthcare is like, we do try many things, many things that we think are going to be, that are going to work. Um, and they just don't ever, they don't quite stick. And they may have some very short-term results, but there's no long, long-term enduring endure, endurance to them. And so so Absolutely. I was, you know, been pretty skeptical for the last, you know, for the first six to 12 months, but I, I actually do think it is sticking with the organization. And yeah. part of the, I think part of the thing that makes it stick is what we were sort of taught is like, look, look for quick wins, <laughs> mm-hmm. look for, look for things that you can do that make a significant impact in a very short period of time. Um, yeah. And, and sometimes they come out of this real time problem solving exercise where you basically, you know, kind of someone comes to you with a problem, and you drop everything and then you, you, you work on it. So one, one example from very early in this exercise that probably happened within the first month after value capture, after the value capture indoctrination <laughs> event was um, I was walking through the department late one afternoon and just happened to stop to chat to one of the nurses that I've I've known for years and we were just chit-chatting and um she was talking about how excited she was that I was you know had moved into this role as chief of surgery because you know geez maybe you'll be able to help you know solve some things which is kind of the way that's sort of a classic that's a classic thing. People are like, well, leaders are supposed to solve our problem. Right. We right, can talk right. about that. We can talk about that in a little bit, but I was like, okay. And I was very early in the journey and I was still kind of thinking that that was my role was like, okay, yeah. I'm, chief, I'm chief problem solver. Yeah. So, and I was trying to learn how to do real-time problem solving and see, and like test out to see how it would work. So anyway, she was talking to me about this problem that, that they had with discharge prescriptions and the when the surgeons would write, prescriptions they weren't getting there's a problem with getting them transmitted to the um the outpatient pharmacy and you know it creates all kinds of downstream problems and the families 
don't get their medic medications on time and this, that, and the other thing. And then she happened to be a nurse that worked on the weekends. And it was even more of a difficult problem on the weekends with discharge medications on Saturdays and Sundays, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I listened to all the things that she had to say. And I said, oh, well, this is really interesting. This is a really interesting problem. And so I, so I was like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to real-time problem solve this, even though it wasn't like a specific real-time thing that just had happened to her. She gave me enough details about the problem. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat this like a real-time problem. So I went, you know, so I went around, I went to the pre-op desk and interviewed the, um, the, the, um, the, 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 the UOC, the unit, sure. unit coordinator who like yeah. checks in the patients and, and logs in their preferred pharmacy information in the computer when they check in for surgery. And then I was like, okay, there's a problem here. And then I went down to the, uh, I went to the outpatient pharmacy and stood in line until I got up to the front of the window. And this is like chief of surgery. I like, you know, with my ID badge yeah. on, waiting in line with all the patients got to the front and I said, Hey, you know, is your manager here? Can I ask him some questions about the discharge pharmacy? Well, she's not here today, but you could go check down to the inpatient pharmacy. So I ran down to the inpatient pharmacy and knocked on the door and said, Hey, I'm Dr. Lander. I want to do some ask. And like, there was no supportive culture at children's for real-time problem solving. Most people are like, who is this joker, you know, running around the hospital trying to yeah. like, ask all these questions. Anyway, long story short, I gathered enough information and was able to figure out that the root cause of this problem was when we, when we transitioned to e-prescribing. So yeah. we used to do what, what used to happen after surgery. And this worked for 20 years without any problem. Yeah. The surgeon would either write out a prescription or eventually would print out a prescription from the electronic medical records, sign it. The nurses would tube it to the pharmacy. They would get the paper copy. They would they would fill it at the pharmacy and then they would provide the patient with their medications. But when we went to e-prescribe, now all of a sudden when the surgeons would go to, to, to fill out the prescription, they would oftentimes it would default to the pharmacy that the patient had chosen, which sure. could be like a, like a pharmacy like close to their house that may not even have the pediatric medications that we're prescribing. And most families, after they've had surgery, they just want to go home with the medications. They don't have to stop at their local yeah. pharmacy to pick them up. But some do because they're insurance, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, long story short, huge problem that was introduced by what everybody thought was going to be great, which was this e-prescribing thing. Right. So once we figured that that was the root cause problem, we were able to work it backwards and basically say, okay, how do we modify the e-prescribing process and create standard work around it so that all the prescriptions actually do still go to the the yeah. hospital pharmacy and the hospital pharmacists were already actually interested in helping to um, to to uh, to to route the prescriptions appropriately, either fill them sure. locally or contact the the patient's preferred pharmacy if that's what the family wanted. But they were in a much better position to to avoid all of the downstream problems. Um, and so that was and that was a huge success because unbeknownst to me. This has been a problem since we went with e-prescribed for like a year and a half. It was sure they just get built in. Their hair yeah. Out. Yeah. And you know, within the matter of a couple of weeks, we solved the problem and it's no longer an issue. And people and like people don't even remember that now that that was a problem because it's been so long since since we fixed it. Well, that's a great example. And I, you know, and I think about our listeners, and some may be saying, okay, well, the chief of surgery can't chase every problem, etc. And, you know, but also heard you say lack of support or really infrastructure for solving problems in real time. And what I hear is you modeling learning, right, what it would take to do that around a concrete example. And then knowing you and knowing what happened, you as a leader took that in, which is part of the design to say, okay, what are the implications of this for the systems we're running to, and we need to structure, right? And you then went into systems building mode around some of those insights, right? To support more agile problem solving across the organization. Is that fair? Yep. I think that's okay. fair. All right. But um, tell us though, from that and from that story, and I'm sure there are many others, you very consciously started to change your leadership style. And if you had to, describe your sort of before and after as you evolved it. And, you know, and you've described it has been a gradual evolution, but as it started to accelerate, what was the before? What is it now? What, you know, what have you gone to? What have you come from? And 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 where are you now in terms of how you lead uh, sort of around coaching and things like that? Yeah, so this has been a very, this is actually 
been a, a I think a source of a very significant personal growth and ex and like exploration and yeah. something that I've had a lot of help along the way with um, from value capture, but also through um, the, what's called the Leadership Academy. So there's a there's a there's a there's essentially a cascade of cohorts of leaders within children's that are that are basically going through a, a 12 session over the course of a year. About once a month, we we our cohort would get together um, and explore yeah. topics in leadership. Um, and this is facilitated yeah. by a, by a, by a local group here in the Twin Cities. Um, and again, one of these things where you're like, and you know, most of us are pretty skeptical about this kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, bring in the consultants and let's all sit around and like talk about what it's like to be a leader. And I will say, during the first couple of sessions, there was an incredible amount of skepticism about like, yeah. oh, is this really going to be effective? Um, and I remember some of the comments people making about that would be like, well, this isn't as good as the leadership thing we did 10 years ago, where it was through the Carlson School of Management. And they had very like a much, I would call it a much more curriculum driven sort of structure. Yeah. The, the, the Leadership Academy was a little bit more focused on concepts and, re, you know, reflection and, 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 and like thinking a little bit, I don't know, more broadly, but less specifically about what you do in healthcare. And, um, and so there's a lot of skepticism about that kind of thing. And, and it's funny because from the beginning of that to the end of that, and I can say the same thing with our experience of value capture is that skepticism at the beginning are really high, um, skepticism at the end, very low. And people really felt like, oh my God, this was a transformational experience. So in mm. any case, so as part of that leadership academy, um, thinking about what it means to be the, like the chief, I'll just say the chief, like, what is my role as the chief of surgery? I alluded yeah. to it earlier. I think the conventional role of a clinical chief was, yeah, I'm here to solve people's problems for them. And um, someone that can actually quote unquote, get stuff done or has the power or mm -hmm. is at the table, whatever, whatever, you know, idiom you want to apply. I think that's a conventional understanding of leadership. And then the other, the, the, the corollary to that is the leaders are the ones that come up with the ideas and then make all the worker bees do like do the work right you know they design the work and then the worker bees just do what they're told um yeah that's like not remotely close to the way it should work or the way that it does work but that i will say that that top-down command and control method you know, method of thinking is, is very, is highly entrenched in healthcare. We, you yeah. see the work chart, right? Yeah. And it just reinforce it every time you turn around, it's like, well, I gotta, you know, I report to so-and-so and they've got to sign off on this and I have to get them to make the decision and, did, and everybody's passing the buck everywhere. So, so that's, that's really started to change and it's changed quite a bit. And I would say that I'm probably at the bleeding edge of that effort at Children's. Yeah. Redefining what it means to be a clinical chief. Um, and it's been a little bit of a struggle, although it's, it's getting easier and easier day by day as people realize that the benefit of the benefit of me not taking ownership of everybody else's problems is they can take ownership of the solutions themselves. Yeah. So, so I would say that is the biggest change and the mantra that we've adopted is look my job as the chief of surgery is to remove barriers and provide resources yeah um i'm not designing your work for you i'm not telling you how to do your work i'm not telling you when to do your work i'm not telling you who do you have to work with um i'm just removing barriers and supplying resources and it yeah. really focuses you it focuses me to think more about what it is what it is that we have to accomplish yeah. rather than thinking about how we're accomplishing it and yeah. um that's been a that's been a significant change and i and it's interesting i i see this thinking all the time like you know i'm still in you know even in our continuous improvement meetings yeah people tend to lapse into that let's focus on let's focus on the process and forgetting what it is we're actually trying to accomplish or trying to do so keeping constantly going back to what's the problem we're trying to solve. And um, 
what's interesting about that process is a lot of times we realize that the problem that we're quote unquote thought we were working on isn't really the problem right. or this isn't even a problem that's worth solving or we have to solve this other problem before we even talk about solving this problem. So it, it really cuts down on the spin and the churn yeah. and the wasted effort um, that, that a lot of people are, are sort of used to experiencing. And that, that leads to a lot of frustration because people spend, they, they put their heart and their soul into quote unquote, solving a problem or coming up with a system or boy, if everybody just did it this way, wouldn't life be great? And you're like, yeah, but you kind of solved a problem that we weren't even looking for, for a, a solution for. Right. Um, so that's been interesting. Um, I think that what I've, what I've, so what I've realized is like, I, my job is to stop doing the work. My job is yeah. to help coach people how to develop and design their systems better. And yeah. that, that's more rewarding, but it's a lot harder. <laughs> it's, it's a different set of questions, a different framework that you come to them with in those moments and a, and a different set of questions, right? And what, so you describe it as rewarding and harder all at the same time. So just share a little bit more about that emotionally or otherwise. Well, I think it's a lot like the old, the old saw about, you know, teach him, you know, uh, you know, give a man a fish, you fed him a day, teach a man to fish, you fed him for, you fed him for a lifetime. takes a lot longer to teach someone to fish than it does to just hand them, hand them a fish. Yeah. You've already caught because you're an expert, right? So, so that's the frustration is that, um, it's just much more time consuming to, to coach yeah. and you, you will have, you will have slower progress at the beginning, but then it becomes yeah. exponential as people, as people adopt the tools, they get their own successes. It tends to inspire them and makes them realize that the results of their, like they're much more, they have much more ownership. They're much more yeah. proud of the results and they're much more excited to teach other people <laughs> and bring other people. In. So it's sort of like, you know, he told two friends and they, they told two friends and so on and so on and so on. So yeah. there's definitely a, uh, an exponential um, effect of it. I think where a lot of leaders can sometimes get trapped up is, or tripped up is um, you have to let go of the recognition. Yeah. You know, I, my job isn't to make myself look good. My job is to make the people that report to me and look good. And then their job is to make the people that report to them look good. And it's, that's that's also a pretty significant culture shift where you just have to get people to focus less on taking personal credit for successes and accomplishments and and sharing the credit or just or just celebrating that we're all doing a better job together as a collective team yeah and um i think that's really really hard for people cuz i think a lot of people yeah. are, are definitely motivated by by reward and recognition. And so it's, it's, and, and, but I think as a leader, you just have to, you just like, I'm not here. I'm not here for kudos. And yeah. I, stick, and I'll, I'll be, I'll be honest with you and your audience. Yeah. It, it's something I have to remind myself of almost. Daily. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can think yeah. of myself telling myself, I'm like, Oh, you know, like we, at the beginning of every huddle, there's celebrations, right? We celebrate yeah. different things. We celebrate different people, celebrate something. And like, um, I feel like I do a lot of really cool things every day and I have a lot of really cool interactions and a lot of things that like people like that might be celebrate celebratory worthy. And yeah. I get sometimes get a little disappointed. Like, why isn't anybody celebrating me or yeah. celebrating my work? That's and I have to remind yeah. myself, I'm like, yeah, that's not what you're in this for. This is not, this is not about you, dude. This is about yeah. your contribution to the, the betterment of the, of the, of the whole. Yeah. And, um, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm truly fine with that, yeah. but. It's amazing how the, our brains work and it, that stuff is just ingrained and you just have to work at it every day to remind yourself of the different things that you need to change your thinking about. Absolutely. I sort of attack those saboteurs and, and, and stay on it. And I'm glad you highlighted that because our, our audience won't necessarily know the kind of beautiful partnership you have with your nurse leader uh, pairing and some of the other leaders um, in your humility, you know, while leading and doing that. 
Um, I will say just um, I do know that uh, the regard held for you is extremely high um, and for your being willingness to do that. So, but it is interesting, right? Because some of the things we used to get rewarded for regularly, we hear about less. And yet, hopefully, the satisfaction of leading this way um, gradually outweighs that and leads forward. Tim, you know, we could talk for a long time um, about these ideas because you've continued to think about at the deepest level, like all the way up to the president of the United States, you know, but also to a parent you shared with me, what a leader is and what a leader's most essential task is. And I wanted to sort of ask you, you know, some some core thoughts as you've, you know, you're, you've you've been evolving on these questions with a lot of talent and a lot of skill and a lot of intelligence, and then you're building new habits. Some overview thoughts of what a leader is, and um, we'll go from there. Yeah. So, you know, I thought of, I thought about that. I was like, if anybody came to me and said, like, well, you know like, like Tim's, Tim's a really great leader. Like, what does that mean? And if I was to say, like, I think so-and-so is a really good leader and such and such is, is not like, what is it really? So I really started to reflect on that. Like what really makes, like, how would I define a good leader? And then I thought, yeah. well, it's not good. And you know, like you said, it's not good enough just to define a good chief of surgery or a good um, chief medical officer or CEO of a hospital. But I wanted to come up with a definition that like would apply to almost any buddy who's in leadership so if yeah. you think about someone who leads a um like a family or a demographic group or the like um a city or a state a mayor president of the united states etc so to me i thought like um you know so i think good leaders are uh people who recognize and understand the common purpose of the of whatever collective that they're leading mm -hmm. um, everybody kind of has a if you're a leader you have a constituency um but generally speaking that constituency and that leader are part of a larger enterprise so if you're the president of the united states you're part of the you know group of nations yeah. you're a mm -hmm. governor of minnesota you're part of this collective of states and part of this nation yeah. And I would say that as a chief of surgery, I, you know, I, I lead a department of people who are, are tight, tightly um, associated with the periop services, but we're all a part of children's and we all interact with the medical surgical units, the people that work in the emergency yeah. department, all the support systems. So like that's the greater collective is really the larger organization. And so we all have a common purpose. Um, and so then what's the goal? Is the goal just to like go, and then this is the conventional thinking of leadership, I think is as a leader, well, your job is to just make everybody row in the same direction as the organization. Like we all need to be aligned. <laughs> like you'll hear that all the time. And I'm like, that's only part of it. Mm -hmm. um, what you really, the, the piece that's missing, and I think the piece that most uh, frontline workers, if you will, feel is missing is that you need to be as a leader, you have to find a way to maximize the well-being and the personal satisfaction among your constituency while maintaining um, allegiance or alignment with that common purpose of the larger organization. And that is, to me, that is the job of a good leader is keeping everybody more or less happy in what they're doing and keeping them motivated and and having them feel like they're part of the larger enterprise and that but then but then you but but then you're able to meet the goals of the enterprise by by that and so to it, me that's that's what it's all about it, it's a very powerful thought for me because it it takes it beyond sort of the simplistic we've got to get everybody aligned and i and i love how you in another conversations you've you've sort of framed it as you know allowing people to continue to feel agency and and vibrant themselves while maybe you know a tweak on the shoulder to just make sure they're still in the river with everybody else you know but that yeah, so, but, so, but that yeah, focus so, on the people yeah. and what they need to be feeling while being enough in line with everyone else so so if you're just if so if i think of the framework as how to if if i was to say like how does your constituent your constituency feel like you are a good leader yeah. um me it's all about being a good coach that's yeah. what i've learned and the coaches that i've had in my lifetime have been very impactful for me and i think the what so what makes a good coach then right mm -hmm. i think a really good coach 
can has an ability to encourage, to inspire, to teach and educate, and also to provide perspective. Um, sometimes yeah. this involves telling very difficult truths. Yeah. You know, you kind of have to be honest with people. You can't just make everything all sunshines and rainbows all the time. But you have to do it in a way that doesn't punish them or demean them, but really prompt them to do some self-reflection and to support them in order for them to kind of be nudged in the proper direction so that mm -hmm. they're successful as a member of the collective that supports the goal, the shared goals of the enterprise. And I think it's important to recognize that the goals have to be shared. And yeah. another component that may be missing from some people's conventional thinking is when you hire people into the workforce, I do think it's important that people understand what, what, the, what the goals of the enterprise are, like, why are we here? And honestly, if you don't share the mission or the goals of the enterprise, then maybe you should, you know, maybe you should take yourself out of the family or move to a yeah. different state or emigrate mm -hmm. to a different country, or in, in this case, maybe, maybe find a different department or a different healthcare organization to work for. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. And bringing that coaching metaphor back and the, the sort of inspiration and guidance combined as part of a larger, very important purpose, which those of us in medicine, you know, and in healthcare obviously should have centrally driving us, but in, but any human and any organization. So, so Tim, if we're, if we're circling back a little bit and you, you were so generous and vulnerable to describe that sort of like a lot of leaders in medicine, et cetera, at one point, not too many years ago, you were thinking of getting out and you were feeling disgruntled. And recently you've said, I love my job and I love how we're changing at children. So if that's still accurate, share a little bit more about that. Why, you know, why, why this now alignment, right? In your own journey and what you're excited about for the future. Um, and then I'll ask one more question after, and we'll let you go back to uh, leading your team and to support the children and families in Minnesota. Yeah, it's funny. I'm almost embarrassed to tell people that when people say like, how are you doing? How do you like the chief of surgery job? I'm like, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say it because I, I know a lot of people don't love their job right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love my job. I, I can confidently say that I don't, I probably the happiest I've ever been in my life. Um, maybe save like a couple of specific events in my life. But like, I would say, if you look at the period of time where I'm most consistently happy, um, I, I don't think I've ever been happier. Why? Um, yeah, why? <laughs> I think a lot of things have fallen into place for me, um, personally, professionally. Um, and a lot of them are, I mean, a lot of them are specific to me, but could be, but could, but could potentially apply to other people in leadership. I think that and, and, and I think people might be surprised by that because like, you got to be crazy. Like healthcare has so many, like we have so many headwinds and, you know, it's a terrible, terrible industry to be involved in right now. We have so many pressures on us from payers and patients and regulation. And it's just hard to, it's just hard. Um, delivering healthcare today is really hard. Yeah. Um, so, but why, so why am I so happy? Um, yeah. I'm happy because Every, every for me personally every day is full of some new challenge that i i that that that's interesting that's challenge it's challenging but it's fun to work through the problem the exercising different skill set i feel like the over the past year two year and a half as i've gone through this sort of in you know like once again calling it the indoctrination we actually we started calling it um drinking the Kool-Aid, right? At the yeah, value factor yeah, event. In fact, yeah, I actually passed yeah, out little yeah. packets of Kool-Aid on the last day because um, yeah. I had clearly drunk the Kool-Aid by the end of the week. We love it. Um, but, and then in addition to the the, the leadership, um, the leadership development that we've had at Children's over this past year um, as part of the Leadership Academy, I feel like I have so many tools yeah. in my toolbox now. So like when, when I'm faced with things that would have been incredibly uncomfortable for me in the past, like having difficult yeah. conversations with surgeons is like probably the thing that I was most afraid of. Um, 
I have so many, um, I have so many tools in my toolbox that I can yeah. pull out and, and, and use to, to help me solve those problems. I feel like I've been, been very well, um, like educated and resourced in, in that, in that, yeah. in those, in those mental tools. And I'm not one of these people who like keeps copious notes and has like notebooks full of like different, uh, spreadsheets and worksheets yeah. and like that I mean I kind of read through them I, I get the concept and then I usually just kind of like make them my own and yeah. so so that's been very that's been very rewarding because you feel like oh my gosh no matter quote unquote no matter how bad things get you can always you can always find some type of path forward yeah and that's that's the real trick that's the real challenge and that's the real fun of being a leader yeah. is like how do I find myself out of this mess um, and then being able to succeed because you've been you've been adequately prepared for it. I will say that parenthetically, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier in the conversation is like I I had I had resources and the plans to leave medicine. Like one yeah. of the things I think that's made me a very successful leader is I don't need the job. Right. I don't do this because I need the yeah. job. I don't need the yeah. paycheck. I don't need to do this. Um, so the only thing that keeps me in this role is that I want to do it. <laughs> yeah. And um, weirdly, that's very freeing. Yeah. Um, it allows you to look at things differently. It allows you to eliminate a lot. A lot of times it's fear of losing our job or fear of being judged for a bad decision or I'm going to get fired if I do that. Or, um, or, you know, people are going to think that I'm a bad leader if I make a mistake. I don't have that baggage yeah. to, 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 to follow me. And I think that that's probably one of my secret weapons. Um, what a makes powerful. You, makes you a much, yeah, it makes you a much more um, courageous <laughs> leader. Because yeah. you can go out on a limb without too much fear of failure. What a, what a powerful uh weapon it is and you know and it reminds me of paul o'neill our one of our co-founders and inspiration who you know talked a lot about leading from purpose and and supporting people to do great things instead of leading from fear and other 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 potentials and you know tim i hear you talking about the fun you're now having and the support for you and is it fair to say you're also doing it with other leaders in an organization that's doing the same thing at the same time and you're building those systems that are built on that way of thinking and and working together and collaborating and that that must have sort of a, a leveraged effect on your sense of well-being right absolutely and i think the building of psychological safety is a really interesting topic um yeah. how do you do that i think that um people feel because that and, and again psychological safety holy smokes if there was well if there was a scoff worthy yeah um, yeah phrase that i was exposed to during my first week of value capture that was it like i mean yeah. you gotta be kidding me talking about being a psychological thing i mean it's really important yeah uh, i think it's probably the most powerful yeah concepts um that i have been exposed to and embraced in the last two years yeah um, the problem is you can't just declare it and that's the other exactly yeah people are like well we want to create a psychologically safe space this is a psychologically yeah. sorry it doesn't you work can't declare yeah. it. you have yeah. to create it and that's really hard you can't it, you can't do it in a session you have the only way that i've observed people creating true psychological safety is over the course of time with shared experience dipping your toe into the water you know, maybe getting a negative reaction, reflecting on that, talking through it, being bold and telling your, telling your, yeah. your colleagues, boy, that didn't really feel like that didn't really feel like, I didn't feel safe when you said that. Like, I feel like I'm being personally attacked or you're not, you're not, yeah. open, blah, blah, blah. So like, that's been like super powerful. And I will say that that's, that comes with with time. So, yeah. so as you said, my, what's so great now, this is, this is, it's so rewarding to have been through again, value capture, been through leadership Academy with 40 of my closest friends at the hospital, my co-leaders. And what I've started to notice, and it's just within the last couple of months, I honestly, Ken, that um, I'll be in a meeting 
and it'll be a meeting with say five or six other people and maybe only two of us are a member of this like secret society of psychological safety and those numbers are continuing to grow in the organization as more yeah. people have these experiences but but right now we're still very early in the process so there's a really a small cohort of us that really understand what that means to be psychologically safe what it means to rumble effectively and now i'm in meetings like that with with my colleagues where they'll actually tell me what they're really thinking. Oh <laughs> like, my goodness, oh, imagine oh that. <laughs> it's like, thank you. Like we've right. just shaved 20 minutes off of this meeting and we probably yeah. can cancel the next two because we've actually gotten to the heart of the matter in a yeah. very short period of time because my colleague can say, look, Tim, I don't know what, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I don't know why you're even bringing this up. It's like, I'll go along with your question, but you got to understand I'm coming from this from a completely, yeah. completely skeptical lens. That's a, that, we never see that at children's. Like, and I, I don't know that I've ever seen that anywhere where people will be that, yeah. that authentic and truthful with you because they know that I'll receive that information and be grateful. That like, oh my God, thank you for just calling it out. So now I know where you're coming from. And now I can understand that everything that you tell me is gonna be filtered through that lens. I can yeah. much harder to see where you're coming from and share your point of view to the degree. And what was interesting about this particular case that I'm thinking about is at the end of the meeting, we realized we completely agreed. We were just yeah. coming at the problem from two different angles. But in the end it was like, yeah, we, uh, totally, yep, we're all, we're both on board, let's move. And so I felt like we really accomplished a lot in a very short period of time. That is fun. That's not yeah. just recording, but that's fun. And it and it goes from tense or frustrated and to just something that is whatever the opposite of that is, right? And it's you just feel like you can leverage that to the moon to do great things together with all of the talent that you all have, right? And if I can so, add, I, I basically yeah. called it out because I realized there was four people on that meeting that had no idea what was going on. They're like, yeah. oh my. I couldn't believe like how we were talking to each other. And so I, at the end of the meeting, before everybody got up, I said, I just, I just want to call it out. I want to thank um, so-and-so for, yeah. for just embracing the moment, just cutting to the chase. We have, we have a relationship that allows us to be psychologically safe. I hope none of you felt that you weren't, um, but this is the type of environment and type of type of meeting that we, that we hope to have. And then that was followed up by a very nice note from one of the other participants. And they're like, I always feel psychologically safe in meetings with you, Tim. Thanks for calling it out. Thanks for being such a strong leader and such a strong advocate for just basically getting stuff done. And so yeah. um, it's, so I think it's changing and I think it's through those types of interactions and that intentionality of, yeah. as a leader to just call it out and basically say, this is how we function better as an organization. Just try it. You'll like it. Right. That combining of the living the example courageously and then drawing attention to the framework around it back and forth. That's the power of great leaders and great organizations that teach and systematize all of that. So what a great example. And, you know, a couple of things are clear to me. Um, one is we need to find more ways, and I'm sure audience members watching this will want to find more ways to learn from the incredible work that Children's is doing, that you are doing as Chief of Surgery and your colleagues are doing, I think at this time that is fraught uh, in American healthcare, and you have been so generous in sort of sharing how you felt and what position you were at, because we know so many other leaders feel that way and so many other people more in the trenches feel that way. And you've offered us a vision of sort of putting the key pieces together at the human, real practical level all at the same time that can sort of chart a better path forward. So I know we're all very grateful to you for the work you've already done, but also your generosity and sharing. And for those that are interested, we'll have uh, Dr. Lander's bio in the show notes. Um, we know that you guys listening are passionate about um, improving things in American healthcare for your teams and yourselves. Um, look for things on sort of deploying strategy in this human supporting effective way coming from value capture shortly, including an upcoming webinar in early November. Um, join with us on LinkedIn. Uh, come to our website, valuecapturellc.com for resources and all of these things. But, you know, uh, 
Dr. Lander, we'll turn it back to you for any last words for your peers and colleagues uh, before we wrap up this chapter. And, and what else would you like to share here? Thank you for your generosity. Um, you know, this has been a really interesting conversation. I really, it, it's, I think the, the thing that I would reflect most, most upon is I would never have, I would never have pictured myself in this position, um, you know, four years ago. Um, I, one of the, one of the concepts that I've tried, been trying to work into is like some type of, um, conversation or whatever is like, I'm not a logo guy. Like, and you can see I'm wearing, I, I'm wearing a children's Minnesota shirt. I'm wearing a children's Minnesota vest, but like for the, my entire life and career, I have not considered myself to be a yeah. local guy. And I think most people understand what I mean by that is yes. like, you know, I've always been someone who's been a very independent thinker, always, I don't really want to be seen as part of like a bigger collective or some, you know, some other end, like I, I, I've been kind of staunchly independent in my thinking and my approach to my life in general. Um, but, but I've, but I've definitely changed and I don't know why I'm, I'm, I don't know why I've become a logo guy. Um, but I, I wear children's logos, I would say, I would say proudly. Yeah. Um, and, um, I think it's because the way that I, the way that I've changed and grown as a person, um, has allowed me to see kind of like the value in embracing that part of who I am that is part of a larger organization and a larger whole. And it, it represents, it represents something more to me than it ever did. Wow. Um, and so that's, I'm not exactly, I haven't really figured out exactly what that means, but, um, but I know that that's been a, that's been a big change um, in, in me in the last couple of years. What another powerful lens. Thank you for offering that. I mean, I, you know, what, what that means and our, or I think it will resonate with a lot of folks and, my own hypothesis on hearing it for the first time is you are helping an organization change in ways that are very resonant with your values and the organization is changing with you. And that makes it a lot easier to, to feel that sense of pride and possibility, right? So I think you terrific. nailed it. Terrific. All right. Well, Dr. Tim Lander, thank you so much. You've been an incredible uh, teaching guest here for us on habitual excellence. And we'll look forward to the next chance to learn with you. We're very grateful. Thanks, Ken. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. To learn more about Value Capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com.